So wonderful to be together as a church family. How cool is that, seeing God at work in and through Heather? I just love sitting back and seeing where God is working in this community. Uh, God is working in so many different ways, sending people out to share the gospel with their friends, sacrificial service. There's um, our Janelle in the middle of chemotherapy, but out there checking in kids this morning. I mean, isn't God at work in our community. That is not a normal thing. That is a God-empowered thing. Well, we're in the middle of a series uh, called Truth on Fire. Uh, It's really about one thing, and that is that knowledge of God's Word and passion for Jesus belong together. And really, the heartbeat behind this whole series isn't just a list of applications or things to do. It's taking time out for six weeks just to stare at God, most clearly seen in our Lord Jesus, until our hearts catch on fire, until they sing. And so we're going to carry on doing that. Uh, many of you have the book. I know we had a retreat a couple of years ago. Maybe this is a great time to just crack out the book and read the book. It's such a great book. Uh, if not, if you're a guest, and especially if you're here and you're a guest and you've been disconnected from church for a long time, warm welcome to you. My name's Brendan, one of the pastors here. Uh, grab a book from our bookshop. We've got loads of copies over there as well. Well, if you have your Bible, open it up to a very famous passage, Isaiah chapter 40. It's a famous passage. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's a long reading, but it's a glorious reading. So I just want you to read along with me, or you can just let the words wash over you, because this is a beautiful, amazing passage of Scripture, God's Word to us, and I'm going to pray for us before we start. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. It says the following. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and, in, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with the span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales. 
and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your word, breathed out by you, eternal, spotless, powerful. Lord, work a miracle in our midst. Cast our eyes to you and soften our hearts. Set them on fire, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, here's a word that no one has ever received as a compliment, ever. Weak. He's such a weak guy. Thank you very much. That's so weak. You're so kind. What a weakling. In our culture, weak belongs alongside words like pathetic, pitiful, sad, tragic. The basic idea of weakness from beginning to end is inadequacy. That could be in the realm of physical weakness. 
a physical inability to perform some sort of activity or a lack of energy or strength. It could be intellectual weakness and unable to think through the issues, maybe bad at writing or algebra. It could be positional weakness, lacking the resources to progress a situation. It could be personal weakness, some aspect of character that is weak, maybe integrity or resolve. Or it could be relational weakness, when someone in leadership fails, like a parent or a pastor, and their ability to lead is weakened. You see, in our neighborhood, weaknesses are things to be denied, to be hidden or eliminated. You know, when you meet someone new for the first time, uh, what's the one thing you ask? You ask them, what do you do during the week? And our response is, you put your best foot forward. Here's what you'll never hear. Well, let's not worry about what I do during the week, my job. It's very average. I want to talk about what I'm terrible at. I'm a terrible parent. I'm a bad parent. I lose my temper so quickly. You will never hear that. The reason is we try to maintain this image of strength while all the while inside we feel fragile. Now, I stumbled across a Peanuts cartoon uh, this week. It made me laugh. I think it kind of sums up our condition. You've got Charlie Brown, and he's there looking glum, talking to Lucy, and he says to her, I feel inferior. And Lucy says, you shouldn't worry about that. Lots of people have that feeling. And Charlie Brown says, what, that they're inferior? And Lucy retorts, no, that you are. (laughs) See, the truth be told, deep down inside, we fear that, don't we? We all know that we're plagued with weaknesses. You know, there's this little window of your life when you're young and healthy that you can begin to believe you have unlimited strength. I think it probably runs from your teens to your 40s. But increasingly, over life, we become more and more acquainted with our weaknesses, physical weaknesses, intellectual, relational, positional, personal. We find ourselves looking around the room at others, worrying that we might be at best average and at worst inferior. In a world broken and corrupted by sin, we all have many weaknesses, but I put to you, we all have a common weakness. And that's not physical weakness, it's spiritual weakness. We're deeply affected by sin, and the fruit is we're consumed so often, not with God, but with ourselves. We do not look to or depend upon God in the way that we should. See, our greatest weakness is not physical, it's spiritual pride. A false belief in our own personal strength apart from God. Tim Keller uh, puts it this way. So spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. I can do it by myself without God. That's spiritual pride. See, our sense of self is so incredibly fragile most of the time, isn't it? See, pride is the illusion of competency. It's not actually real. And so many of us find 
criticism really difficult, don't we? We find it really hard when someone criticizes us. And the reason is that balloon of pride, it's so easily popped. It's so easy to feel deflated and shattered. I want us to think about this. Why are we so sensitive to criticism? Well, the answer is we are deeply uncomfortable with weakness. Without God, we can't find self-worth. We can't find purpose. We can't find meaning. We won't be competent to run our own lives. So what I want us to think about this morning is how do we get out of this self-obsession? How do we get out of this illusion of independence? How do we get out of this spiritual pride? How can we grow together, be more comfortable with our weaknesses, with our inadequacies? Well, I tell you, you can't do it by just beating yourself up and just trying to be more humble and trying to transform yourself. That's just a recipe if you achieve it for more pride. You'll look back and you go, what a great job I've done in becoming humble. The only way to get out of our self-obsession is to look outside of ourselves. The solution is to be so captivated by the God that is completely unrivaled that we stop caring about our weaknesses. If you take notes this morning, I've entitled this message, God is unrivaled. I've got three points that come from this passage, but really the angle will be taken on this. The, the purpose of this message is that we'd be so in awe of our unrivaled God that we'd happily embrace his way of weakness. God has a way that is marked by weakness that I believe we will find in this text, and I want us to happily embrace that path because we're so transfixed on the God who is unrivaled. So let's dive right into our passage. Point number one this morning, fragile people versus God's power. See, so often our minds are consumed with thoughts about ourselves. We act as though we are in fact the center of the universe. You know, have you ever had this happen to you? You receive a criticism from someone and you find yourself unable to sleep at night because you're going over and over and over that criticism in your head. Writing the scenario over and over again, and perhaps the clever thing you would say back to that person. We're so easily offended and thrown, aren't we? The temptation when we're offended is just to turn our gaze completely inward to think about ourselves. Now, passage today shows us that we are fragile. We are so fragile. But God is all-powerful. And everything in the universe is not about us, it's about Him. You know, just by way of Context, our passage comes from the book of Isaiah. And this book was written at a time of great uncertainty. A great uncertainty for God's people. Uh, They were a small nation and they were being knocked about by the global superpowers of their day who were jostling for supremacy. The Egyptians, the Babylonians, the, the Assyrians, the Persians, all throwing them this way and that way. And we'd last heard Isaiah speak publicly when the Assyrian king, uh, Sennacherib, marched all the way to the gates of Jerusalem in 701 BC. And we know that at that time, Isaiah was already nearly 70 years of age. He was an old man. And though God had spared them from being taken, Isaiah looked to the future and knew that Israel's heart was still incredibly hard against God. And looking to the future, he saw that another superpower, the Babylonians, would come and succeed in taking them captive, the greatest national crisis this 
nation would ever face. And seeing these dark days coming, they knew they would need a message of comfort to hold on to in those terrible, te- uh, terrible days, when they'd be at last ready to listen to God. And so we read in verses 1 and 2 of our passage, Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Looking deep into the future beyond a terrible war yet to come, Isaiah brings from God a message of comfort. The fighting is over. Your sins have been completely paid for. And then Isaiah hears three different voices call out from the throne of God. The first says in verses 3 through to 5, make a highway for God to come to his people. The picture is of a victorious king on a victory parade uh, making his way to his people. It's a picture of a Roman emperor you know, on a war horse with a huge procession making his way to come to his people. Every obstacle removed, every challenge out of the way, he will easily come to them. And the second voice is a powerful reminder of how fragile we are as people. Read with me again verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but... The word of our God will stand forever. God says you can compare humanity to grass. And they're things of beauty to wildflowers. They're here just for the briefest of moments. When God's breath, the Holy Spirit, the bringer of life and the bringer of death blows, people wither and they fade away. Do you feel the weight of that? That in a blink of an eye, your life will be over and you will be dead. You know, some of you in this room feel the weight of that. You're maybe in your last season. But most of us live under the illusion that we have all the time in the world. And that's not the case. Life is incredibly fragile. It's over in a second. Now, I remember when I was just a young adult, I had uh, two good friends of mine, Tim and Rebecca. They were about Amy and Marcos's age. They were due to be engaged, and they'd both got jobs in Canberra in the new year uh, when they were going to be married. They'd got a place they were renting in Canberra. Tim was still living in Fig Tree at the time and making his way to visit uh, Rebecca in Canberra. He arrived to visit her one morning uh, before their wedding, he knocked on the door, and there was no answer. He let himself in and found her in bed. She had died in her sleep. A cause to this day remains unknown. Like the grass that withers and disappears. Here today, gone tomorrow. Some 20 years of age. Even if we live to 100 years, it's a blip on the line of history. You know, Josh was over at our place uh, the other day. We were walking back to the car, and then I was walking back up the driveway and just looking at the stars in the sky. And just got me thinking about the night sky. It has about 9,000 stars that you can see, I'm told, in the night sky. 
The closest one is 40 trillion kilometers away. That's uh, Proxima Centauri. That's 4.2 light years. But most of them are about 1,000 light years away. And I got me thinking about that. The light that we see when we look at the stars at night, most of it was created 1,000 years ago, hitting our eyes. That's 10 lifetimes of 100 years ago. That's 1024. It's more than 40 years before the Normans would invade London in 1066. So much of human history has passed since that moment. And it's hard not to feel as you get older that your experience is that time just seems to speed up. You know, I was thinking just the other day, the year 2000 seems so visit, uh, vivid for me. And, and, and that was 24 years ago. And, and jump forward another 24 years, I'll be well into my 60s. See, our experience of time is not linear, it accelerates. One year quicker than the next, quicker than the one before, quicker than the one before, and our lives might be as brief as a blade of grass, but not so with God and his word. Verse 8, God's word is eternal. It stands forever. And this passage moves then to one of the most stunning descriptions of the absolute power and majesty of God in the whole Bible. A series of questions that over and over and over and over again ask, who can compare to our God? And the answer is, no one. He is, verse 12, unrivaled in power. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? The oceans. 360 million square kilometers of ocean in the world, averaging 3.7 kilometers in depth. It's over 1.3 cubic uh, cubic kilometers of water in the world. 1.3 billion cubic kilometers of water in the oceans of the world. It says that God holds it in the palm of his hand. It's not an indication of size, but a picture of ease. For God, it's just like a skilled craftsman in his workshop holding the oceans in his hand. It's easy. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains on scales and the hills in the balance? The dust of the earth, 150 million square kilometers. The mass of the earth, six times 10 to the power of 24 kilograms placed in a kitchen measure. The mountains of the earth, there's 1.2 million of them. 14 over 8 kilometers high. Everest alone weighing over 158 million tons, like a small item on a kitchen scale. Nothing on earth can compare to God. His power is completely unrivaled. Not just that, unrivaled in wisdom. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord or what man can show him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Who has seen the limits of his presence and knowledge? 
who has given him even just one piece of advice or wisdom, who has helped him to know something, to act justly. It's so easy to hear God's word and question and say, yeah, I know that, but this is a special situation, or I just don't think I need to be generous like that. But God has limitless power and wisdom in his eternal word, wisdom from before the ages. But not just that, unrivaled in immensity as well. Verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlines like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offerings. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. The 8.1 billion people of this earth are like dust on the scales to God. The cedars of Lebanon couldn't keep him warm or all their cattle satisfy him. He looks to the nations of the earth and he sees the emptiness, the nothingness of the very beginning of time before he made it all. More his unrivaled in his sovereignty. Jump down with me to verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like curtains and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. God is the maker of heaven and earth and therefore he rules over not just some things but everything. He sits above the circle of the earth, that's the horizon. He is over everything. And people are like small insects to him. The creation of the universe was like opening curtains in the morning to him, like setting up a tent. The kings of the earth that would have caused such terror to God's people are like stubble or like dust on glasses as you clean them. The Holy Spirit, the giver of life and death, blows. And just like all of us, princes and kings wither and they die. But not just that, lastly... He's unrivaled in authority. Read with me verse 25. He says, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. You look up the sky and you see the stars of the sky, He created them and can call them by name. He knows them and controls them. You know, there's a hundred billion stars in the Milky Way, our galaxy. And there's estimated two trillion galaxies in the known universe. That's just what we can see. So I kind of did some playing around with it this week to kind of make some calculations to put it in perspective, put it together, and that's two times 10 to the 23 stars in the known universe. Well, in the earth, there's about 7.5 times 10 to the 18. That's 7.5 sextillion grains of sand, right? 
estimated. That equates to 27,000 stars for every grain of sand on the entire planet. And he commands them by name. God is unrivaled in his authority. To whom can you compare God? No one. See, the hope that God's declaration of who he is is kind of beginning to stir your heart. I, I hope it's beginning to capture your vision. See, spiritual pride is trying to live independently of God, to try and find purpose and meaning and happiness in life without Him. And it makes about as much sense as a little boy trying to wage war on the sun using a paper sword. The sun is 1.3 million times the size of this earth. It's cute but it's also ridiculous. But there's a big problem with that analogy. The big problem is it greatly diminishes the power of God. There are no fair analogies that can capture his might. He is unrivaled. See, our problem is that we're so fragile. We're so often caught up with thinking about small things like how do we compare with others around us? If I could just do a little better than the person next to me, maybe my life will mean something. If I could just be a little bit more wealthy, a little bit more successful, a little bit more well-liked, a little bit more kind, then I'll be happy and my life will mean something. As C.S. Lewis puts it this way, he says, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich, or clever, or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer, or cleverer, or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Isn't that so true? We devote our lives to looking around at the others in the room. We're so fragile. Spiritual pride operates under the delusion that happiness and meaning is to be found by looking at the next person, all the while ignoring God. And God delivers this majestic picture of his absolute power and wisdom and sovereignty to comfort a people who in the future would feel completely down and out. It's kind of a picture so breathtaking that it makes our concerns feel so trivial, doesn't it? Happiness and security and purpose and meaning are to be found not by looking at others, but by looking at Him. But if people are fragile and God is almighty, if that's all we had in the Bible, we wouldn't have the full picture, would we? You might think that unrivaled power of God is opposed to weakness. But the message of the Bible is not that it's opposed, but that it's perfected in weakness. 
So the unrivaled king of glory most clearly displays his power, not in the absence of weakness, but in the midst of weakness. We turn to the second point of this message, which is the way of weakness. See, our passage is meant to be a comfort to people in a seemingly desperate situation. They will likely would be wondering in the future, is our nation over? Has God abandoned us for good? And in reply, the first voice cries up from the throne of God, get ready because God is coming to you. Prepare a highway for a victory parade. He's coming to his people. See, God is going to reveal his glory to everyone. Words that John the Baptist took to announce the coming of our Lord Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, Matthew writes, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. See, the Lord Jesus and his arrival is the clearest display of the glory of the unrivaled God. His coming is the fulfillment of this word of encouragement preached long before. His coming revealed that God doesn't despise us for our weakness. He loves us and wants to rescue us. He enters into our weakness and displays his supreme power over all. See, the mystery of Christmas is that God eternal embraced the frail weakness of humanity. That the Lord Jesus was born as a baby into a manger and faced the weakness of an impoverished childhood. That at the start of his ministry, the Lord Jesus spent 40 days and nights in the wilderness without food and without drink, being tempted and knew the weakness of hunger and temptation. That the Lord Jesus faced the weakness of not being at home in this world. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I do not fit at home in this world. He experienced the weakness of being misunderstood as his disciples failed to grasp what he had come to do, that he had came to lay down his life for them. He experienced the weakness of betrayal at the hands of Judas, Peter, and every disciple who abandoned him. Yet in the midst of every weakness, he looked to his Father in heaven who strengthened him with power from on high to endure. In weakness, he walked to the cross unable to even carry the timber unaided. And in pain, and in pain, he hung dying, nailed to that rugged cross. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13, 4, for he was crucified in weakness but lives in the power of God. Divine power strengthened him despite the agony of his weak and failing flesh as he hung upon the cross. Weakness and strength collided as he embraced the sins and failures of us all, absorbing them and God's wrath in full. In weakness, the power of God was on full display as he was despised and scorned again and again until he breathed his last and his work was complete. See, the cross appeared to be a moment of human failure and weakness. A would-be king unable to take his rightful place, powerless to stop his own murder. But it was, in fact, the greatest display of God's power as he endured the cross, drinking its cup to the dregs, bridging heaven and earth for us. 
As Paul writes in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and the Greek. See, our God is so unrivaled in power and glory that he doesn't shrink back from human weakness and frailty. He loves to use it to display his power and glory. More raised from death to life, he calls each and every one of us to follow him on the path of weakness. As the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 8, verse 34, he said, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, and the Gospels will save it. You know, if you're here today and you're a Christian, you know already that what Jesus is calling you to do here is to embrace a path of profound weakness. Carrying a cross was a practice of condemned criminals on their way to execution. It means, like the Lord Jesus, renouncing all expectations for the future from society. It's to expect that people will view you with contempt and disgust and reject you. This should be the expectation of every Christian who lives faithfully to Jesus. To continue on in love, carrying their cross without retaliating or lashing out. To move in love towards others and to faithfulness towards God, regardless of what it costs you personally. Trusting that God and his perfect timing will vindicate you for each and every wrong. See, our challenge in the Christian life is not that we don't know what Jesus is calling us to, that is the way of weakness. It's actually that we're scared of it. That's our challenge. We find ourselves asking questions like, will we have the strength to cope? Will God help us in the midst of our weakness? I mean, think with me. Why do we struggle so much with giving? The answer is the security money brings the safety, the strength that it provides. And we're afraid of being weak, missing out. Why do we struggle with serving? Why do we struggle with carrying people's burdens? We're afraid of being drained. And so I want to end our time with a third point called the embrace of weakness. Really looking at how we can grow to embrace the path of weakness that Christ is calling us to. The amazing answer is that our passage was written to those who couldn't even see the brutal challenges ahead. And it has real wisdom for us. Verse 27 of our passage, we read the following. It says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not heard? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. 
How can we grow to embrace the path of weakness in following Christ? Well, the answer is by keeping our gaze firmly fixed on the creator of the ends of the earth. See, we worry about carrying the burdens of others. Will we have the strength? We worry about keeping up appearances. Will others think less of me? We worry about getting ahead of the pack, making something of our lives. We worry about depending on God. Will he get tired of us? And yet, as we've seen, God is unrivaled in strength. We give strength to others by diminishing our reserves. God gives strength and his total power remains the same. The plight of every person is at some point to find themselves exhausted by life. doesn't matter how young you are. And I wonder if that's how you feel this morning. Fragile. Weak. Let me read again verse 31. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. You know, earlier this year I was at Diamond Beach up the coast and uh, as I was running along, I saw these sea eagles, uh, white-bellied sea eagles, just like doing circles around me. And they just suddenly rise up in the air and float around. And they effortlessly just seem to soar over the ocean, spiraling higher and higher on the wind. They seem to have this kind of endless reserve of energy. But the truth is, they're powered by hidden streams. This is what God promises to do for all who wait for him. See, this idea of waiting of the Lord, it's language of relationship. It points to expectation. It points to patience. It points to trust. We've been talking a lot today about this kind of spiritual pride we all experience in a broken world, denying our weakness, thinking we can just do it by ourselves alone. In our culture, we, when we think of proud people, we normally think of those who are kind of arrogant you know, and, and talk a big talk and boast and look down on others and kind of treat them with contempt or maybe just not even interested in them at all. And they may, may well be indicators of spiritual pride, but I put to you, they're not the greatest indicator. The greatest indicator of the presence or absence of spiritual pride is your prayer life. Nothing quite says, I believe I can make it through life on my own, like the absence of prayer. Nothing quite offers us resources to find joy and strength and peace and, and hope in the midst of weakness, like waiting on the Lord in prayer. See, our culture says something is hard, it mustn't be for you. If it's uncomfortable, it's probably time for a change. If you're experiencing weakness, something is deeply wrong. But Jesus says, I'm calling you to the way of weakness. I want your whole life to be ever increasingly marked by weakness. But don't be afraid to come. Come to me. I will give you strength. As he said to the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. We see, we worship a God that is so unrivaled in strength that he loves to use weak, frail, insecure vessels like us to magnify his glory. In God's kingdom, weakness plus Christ's power doesn't equal less power. It equals perfect power. Because power displayed in weak vessels reveals its source. It comes from God and not from us.
And as we close, I just want to end with a story of someone's life I just think so beautifully captures this. It's the story of J.I. Packer, who died in 2020. He was one of the most influential Christian authors of the 20th century. As a child, Packer uh, described himself as being solitary and somber, a kind of loner as a child. And on the 19th of September, 1933, at the age of seven, he was chased by a bully at school out onto the street and he violently collided with a passing bread van. And he suffered actually a horrible injury. Uh, He suffered a depressed compound fracture to the frontal bone on the right side of his forehead. You can kind of think about it like if you have an egg and then you kind of whack the top with a spoon and it kind of caves in a little bit on the top. That's what actually happened to him. And the result is that he had some brain damage and had to have brain surgery and was in hospital for three weeks, uh, followed by six months of rehab at at home away from school. A, A skilled surgeon just happened to be on at the local hospital And they removed the bits of broken bone from his uh, forehead, revealing a hole covered by a patch of skin over his head with just obviously his brain directly exposed behind. And as a result, he needed to wear a black protective aluminium plate over his injury, uh, held in place by an elastic band. Can you imagine that? And he was forbidden from playing any sports, And so he wore this protective plate for the next eight years until uh, at the age of 15, just before entering university, he refused to wear it anymore. So this young loner packer, now with a permanent facial deformity of which he would have for the rest of his life, was further mocked and teased. I heard him saying in an interview not long before he passed away, He said, I can sympathize with those children who suffer terribly at the hands of bullies. But in the midst of his weakness, God was powerfully at work molding him and shaping him. Isolated and excluded, he gave himself to reading and writing. And God began the work of shaping him into one of the greatest Christian writers of the 20th century. Weakness plus Christ's power equals perfect power. Would we be so in awe of our unrivaled God, friends, that we'd happily embrace his way of weakness? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for grace upon grace revealed to us in and through our Lord Jesus. Lord, we're so sorry that so often we buy into the illusion that we have some strength in and of ourselves Lord, would you forgive us for the times in which we look around at others, worrying about where we sit relative to them, rather than gazing on the beauty of you. Lord, help us to see how matchless you are in your power. Help us to see how unrivaled you are in all the earth. Would the fruit of that be happy, joyfully, embracing the way of weakness you have walked before us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.